subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Hola, Cliffberto. Hola, Bobito. How are you doing, my friend? Excelento. Excelente. Excelente. There you go. There you go. Cool. Anything exciting happening? Uh, What got my heart rate up today was watching that plane crash in Nepal, thinking of our time flying there. You know, when I saw the headline, I was thinking, oh, that's a Luke Airport. That's what I thought, Luke. Yeah, Luke. Yeah, yeah, I I thought for sure, because that's uh, by far the most dangerous airport in the world, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know if it still is because there hasn't been that many crashes there since I got the new planes, but it was, yeah. When you do those flight simulators, they go to the, the hardest place in the world to land. That's where you, the final flight, when you go through the whole stages, that's the one you land at last. You, you got to hand it to the Nepalese, though, up there at the airport itself. And this is a very high-altitude airport. Uh, it takes a special kind of plane to even land or take off there. The landing strip is pretty short pretty short we we landed in there uh, we we flew into there when we were filming the Nepal episode for Finding Bigfoot um, and you got to hand it to the Nepalese people though because they put a crashed airplane right next to the um the, the landing strip <laughs> the, the whole the runway the runway was lined with old wrecked planes they use them for parts i guess for when things go wrong yeah 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 i just thought they were teasing us and like saying this could be you no, I know when they went down there with that Josh Gates's show, like the year before, that the plane, two planes in front of them crashed and they couldn't land. They just saw the burning wreck on the runway and they had to turn around and fly back to Kathmandu. Yeah, it's a nutty place. And of course, uh, landing is one thing, but taking off is entirely different because you you just basically try to get enough speed. And then there's, uh, you know, how many hundreds or thousand foot drop right there that you, if you don't have speed, man, you're going down. Yeah, it's like a 4,000-foot drop because the runway is so – what was it? It's like 30 degrees at, at one point or something? It's, or not, maybe not 30, but it's like – it was it, something like that. Like it was – it's the steepest runway in the world. Like there's no steeper runway. And, uh, so we were there 10 years ago, and they had just gotten the planes that we got that, that we flew in that year. And they were way more powerful because it's such high altitude that all the planes that they had before weren't built to land that high of an altitude. And so they they had uh, – People would, I guess they'd crash um, coming in, but they'd, I guess, even more crashed, taken off too loaded. They'd just drop because no matter what, when you take off, you just drop, you go up the end of the runway and it's like a 4,000 something foot vertical drop and you just pull up out of it as you gain momentum. You get all that speed going and you just, they just pull up out of it and fly out the valley. But they'd get too, there's no, right, there's no one, there's no FAA there. There's no one telling you you can't do it. You just get on, the, the pilot decides and, they, you know, something gives them a bribe or whatever, you know, like, come on, you know, it's a, it's a good friend of theirs saying, you know, you know, you can do it. And then they throw in another whatever box or something. And they, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. The thing goes down. Yeah. And of course, you know, people, people are interested in this sort of thing, any aviators or whatever, check it out. Like do a Google search real fast and learn about this airport. It's pretty nuts. It, it's really cool. It's, it's one of the most exquisitely beautiful places I've ever been in my life. And, and frankly, deadly deadly um really cool place and the little town is so totally cute and there's like fake starbucks and mcdonald's that i'm yeah. sure that the the corporations would love to sue if they ever <laughs> got up there because because like it's like oh yeah like a, a, some junior high kid drew that logo and painted yeah. on a sign, you know yeah <laughs> it's a rad place though sir edmund hillary established that airport with the with the uh, sherpas as a way to cut down their walk to it, it used to be like a three to four week walk from Kathmandu to go to Climb, then you, you, you'd walk, you know, two, three, four weeks, three, four weeks to go to Mount Everest. Then you had to hike the mountain itself. And this cut the walk down to, it's only eight to 10 days walk from the airport. Yeah. And of course, the airport itself is called Tenzing Hillary Airport. Um, Hillary's foundation, I think, had a lot of, uh, funded a lot of it. And uh, Tenzing, which is a local Nepalese man that accompanied Hillary everywhere, he was, you know, the, the first dude to actually ascend Everest. Um, he's a local hero. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, his name should go first by all accounts, even though um, Hillary sure. funded it. Funded it, but he, Hillary would have been dead without this guy. So, agreed. Really, really neat area. It's totally beautiful. Just do a quick Google search Lukla, L U K L A airport. It's pretty fantastic. So, yeah. So, uh, so that, that got you going this week because we had been there, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah. I just saw that video like right before um, we got on the, on the phone together, and I was like, ooh, man, I got my heart beating. Yeah, it could have been us. Yeah. 
Yeah, because uh, N- Nepal was an adventure anyway with those three days we stayed in the airport and you eating street food everywhere. And yeah, it was, it was you know, and we couldn't fly out because it was the rainy season. But these LA producers, they said, what? But it's the end of the rainy season. It's like, well, yeah, but the weather's bad. Yeah, but it, but it should have been better. It's the end of the rainy season. So you moron. It's like saying like, well, it's, it's three in the morning. It's the end of night. Why is it so dark? Why is it still dark outside? It's the end of night. When you told that to told that to them, I was laughing so hard. That was so good because they were like, they could, they're like, uh, 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 like they just sputtering. Yeah, these these 25, 27 year old producers. I think they they're they're worldly and they know everything because they've been to a couple countries. And like, come on, man, like, come on. It, but it's the end of the rainy season. <laughs> yeah, with three three weeks to go. I know, I know exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, anything else going on that's exciting? You're still down in LA? Yeah, I got to take up. Uh, take my mom had a little medical uh, incident, but she's doing better now. And yeah, I just have to like she can't drive or anything, and like her, she's real weak and dizzy and stuff. So I got she can't carry anything, and she was doing my dad all by herself. So we're we're um, right now uh, hiring, looking, we're interviewing people to hire to come in and help for a couple hours a day. Well, it's pretty fortuitous you happened to be down there when all that went down. So, oh yeah, because she she uh, she she doesn't even remember that day. She doesn't even know what happened. Like my mom's pretty intimidating when she gets mad. She, I was like, I'm calling nine one one. She goes, Don't you dare, you know. And well, you should have to be between you and your brothers. I mean, you know, the house must have been a madhouse with you guys growing up, dude. It was because plus we were the hangout house, so like all our nutty friends hung out there too. So yeah, she she put up with a lot, and then. Um, Alice is, a, is another angel in your life, by the way. Yeah, I, I call one of our grade school buddies that you know we're still good friends with. He's a he just retired last year from being a fire captain over there in uh, Torrance, where the main hospital is. You know, like they're, they're you know fire department paramedics. So I called him, and he only lives a few minutes away, and he jammed over right instantly. Him and his wife came over, and and he looked at her for about thirty seconds, a minute, and talked to her and said, "Okay, here's what we're doing." We can get in my truck and I'll drive you over there right now. We're going to haul ass over there, or I'm calling 911. It's up to you. Which which way do you want to do it? And so she agreed to go over with him. And then he, since he, you know, been for 30 years, been taking people into the hospital. Like uh, she, he took her in the back door. Yeah, he got her a room, a bed, and everything. So that was cool. That that, that was the good part. And so we're just staying down here for the ne- this next week and. Uh, get someone hired to come in, then I can take. And my brothers that live down here, they can help, and, it, and then I can take off. Okay, well, good. I'm, I'm glad you were down there for. It. And of course, you know, um, between uh, Alice and Fireball, I mean, they're like other parents for me. And Alice is always commenting on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> she, she rules. She rules. I love your parents. I love your parents. So yeah. give them my best, please. I will. Okay. Then yeah, I had some bad news this week. Robbie Knievel passed away. I saw that. I saw that. And I thought of you immediately. Yeah, and of course, for everybody who's wondering, like, why are we talking about Evil Knievel's son? Well, it's because uh, Boba did a documentary with him about Bigfoot. Didn't he say something to the effect of, I know more about Bigfoot than anyone? He did? I think he said that in the documentary. If, if not those words, something pretty pretty similar to that. I thought it was a pretty strong statement, considering how <laughs> little he actually proved to know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Robbie liked to imbibe a little bit. Yeah, I th- I th- like for example, I think he said uh, I think he said Bob Gimlin's name incorrectly. He did. Said, well, that, that's kind of like one hundred and one, man. That's that's like entry level Bigfoot stuff. Yeah, it was it was kind of rough to like play it like he was a like an expert. <laughs> but I just kind of went along with it. So, anyways, uh, rest in peace, Robbie, and I'm I'm glad his family was with him. His his daughters were all with him, and um, his siblings were with him, and. He had that. He at least had that little bit of comfort. Yeah, little Robbie Knievel story for everybody. But you know, I think we've uh, we, we got to get into our guests because we actually oh, got yeah. a guest sitting on. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for our guest that we never spoke to. Um, otherwise, we can just fill up the entire hour or more doing this sort of thing. But let's let's hop into our guest today. I know we have a lot more to talk about, but we do have a, a members uh, beyond Bigfoot and Beyond thing to do after this as well. We can save a lot of that for that. But today, our guest is uh, coming back for more. Basically, it is Pat Spain. Pat Spain is a professional biologist. He's an author of a ton of books. Um, more books than I realized. Um, I only have one of them and I feel like I'm a fool now because there's so many books and, and li- listen to some of these titles, bulletproof ground sloth on the hunt in Brazil, a 
or how I lost my mind was dyed blue and accidentally learned how to smuggle weapons. Here's another <laughs> title. Sea serpents on the hunt in British Columbia or how I went to the bottom of the ocean and a giant fish accidentally got me drunk. And uh, <laughs> here's another one. 200,000 snakes on the hunt in Manitoba or how I found a new beginning at the bottom of a giant pit of snakes. <laughs> yeah, who's naming the, but anyway, yeah. So Pat Spain, uh, thanks so much for coming back on Bigfoot and beyond. I understand you have a new book to come talk about. So we were thrilled to have you back on. So Pat, welcome back to Bigfoot and beyond. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is awesome. Hey, Pat. <laughs> hey, really good to meet you. So the last time I was on, uh, Bobo, you were not around. No, I missed it. I'm really psyched uh, that, that we get to talk today. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, um, I, I knew who you were, but I didn't really know about you when you came on last time. But then I looked you up and I was like, oh, my God, this guy is the nephew of Charles Fort. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. They're coursing through your blood. Coursing through your blood. That's right. Absolutely. And for the listeners, uh, he started 14 Science, like F-O-R-T-E-A-N. Yeah. Yeah. He's basically the godfather of all these weird mystery things that people are into now. Um, he, he was oh, paranormal, definitely paranormal. The study yeah. of anomalous phenomena. So he was the first to document a lot of the things that the scientific community kind of wrote off as just, you know, hoopla and folklore and whatever. Uh, but he was the first to really document ball lightning and raining fish, uh, which we now know exist. And he, he made the term, uh, teleportation. No, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's all for it. Now, did you grow up knowing about your relative here or did you learn about that later in life? So the, the, the weirdest thing, um, so I was a strange kid, which will surprise absolutely no one uh, who's familiar with any of my work. <laughs> and uh, my grandmother used to uh, just kind of shake her head and say, oh, you're just like your Uncle Charlie. And I never knew who Uncle Charlie was. I just assumed that this was a family friend that I hadn't met at the, you know, Fourth of July barbecues or whatever. Yeah, so I'm going to keep, keep, keep Pat away from Uncle Charlie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I never really thought too much of it. And then um, one day when I was in probably eighth grade or freshman in high school, my grandmother saw me reading the Book of the Damned. And she goes, hey, that's your Uncle Charlie. I said, what are you talking about? She goes, your Uncle Charlie. That's him, Charles Fort. I was like, oh, my God, no way. And uh, she, went, she went in the back room of her house and pulled out a whole bunch of first editions, you know, signed by him, <gasps> made out to different members of the family. Wow. And it was wild. So she and I talked that afternoon about it. She told me some family stories and stuff. And, uh, and then when she passed, she actually left all those books and some other kind of ephemera to me from, uh, from Charles Fort, which was pretty amazing. Whoa, that's awesome. Yeah. That, that is a st- I, I don't even, I don't think I knew that. I've known you for years and I don't, I don't think I knew that about you. Yeah. Yeah. And I've just, I've just recently uh, been talking to the 40 and times actually, and they're going to be doing a story on me this spring. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. They're a good group over there. What, what, can, what can you tell us about? I mean, I, I mean I, I'm a history nut, you know, as far as like all this sort of subject goes. Uh, I had a guy in the museum today, a guy named Wes. He sh- shared some Bigfoot stuff with me I've never seen in my life and uh, is lending it, lending the stuff to the museum uh, to show a little bit and to, to scan and add to our archives, of course. But um, what, what are some of the artifacts um, that you've gotten besides like signed first edition books by Charles Ford? Uh, so it, it's things like a, a trunk, you know, kind of a, a yeah, it, it's too small to be a real traveling trunk, but like, a you know, maybe the size of a small desk uh, t- surface kind of thing. Um, so a trunk of his and a cigarette case that was either his or more likely his father's. He wasn't a smoker, apparently, but it also wouldn't have been unusual for someone to have given him an engraved cigarette case. You know, just that was the assumption in the time. And then just a couple other uh, like uh, tin type photos of him and his brothers. Wow. Yeah, those are really cool. What years was he alive? He passed in, uh, oh man, the early... 19 i'll have to i will have to google it (laughs) (laughs) i have absolutely no mind for dates Um, uh may 3rd 1932 there we go okay 1932 so and and that was one of the other things so my birthday is may 2nd his birthday is may 3rd both of our wives names are nope his death day is may 3rd sorry his death day his birthday is august 6th yeah his death day that's right and then my birthday is may 2nd um both of our wives names are anna and there was a there was a couple other just fourteen uh, events around both of us. He has a much better mustache than I can grow, though. How, how old were you when you found out that he was your uncle? Um, probably either eighth grade or freshman in high school. You must be just beaming with pride, I bet. Oh yeah, yeah, it was wild. I mean, it it didn't really. 
yeah, it was just so bizarre because I had honestly been reading his work for a couple years before then. And, and of course, I'd heard about him and um, just had absolutely no idea this family connection at all. I didn't even know that Fort was was part of like, I didn't even know that that was on my grandmother's side. Um, there's a little bit of family history at play, of course. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. And do, do you think that that played a role in your future life? you know, which is now your past life, of course, but you know, <laughs> it absolutely did. So I've always been interested in this stuff. It was always something that, uh, so even without the Fort connection, I was certainly headed down this path, but then, um, I was doing wildlife series and I'd done a, a wildlife series on animal planet and I had filmed a couple pilots for, uh, for animal planet and for, oh man, the other one I think was discovery. And then um, I was filming my own show and putting it up on YouTube, and it was all wildlife-focused, and I pitched a couple crypto angles, but it kind of got nowhere until um, I got a call from Icon Films, the guys that make River Monsters. And they, um, as I'm talking through with them, the, it's the, the head of Icon Films is this guy, Harry Marshall, who's one of my personal heroes. And I just was amazed that I was actually on the phone with this guy who I had idolized for years. And he's talking to me and he's like, well, we have a show going with Nat Geo and we'd really be interested. We're looking for an American host. Um, what do you know about cryptozoology? So we're kind of going back and forth a few times and you know, I'm answering some questions about what I think of certain cryptids and where, where I fall on this. And he goes, oh, okay, okay, yeah, this sounds good. Um, what do you know about a man named Charles Fort? And I went, oh, it's actually my great uncle. And it was just silence. And uh, he just goes, well, this, this has to happen. This is, this is going to happen. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a talk about a hook, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it was totally unknown. Like he had, he had seen my wildlife stuff before he knew anything about this kind of angle. And, um, yeah, so it was pretty cool, but it definitely helped. I'm, I'm sure that that is the reason why I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nepotism. Yes, exactly. I'm a Nepo baby, I guess. <laughs> was that, was that beast hunter or legend hunter? That was beast hunter. Okay. That was Beast Hunter. Then Legend Hunter was Travel Channel. And um, yeah, yeah. you guys were talking about the helicopter earlier. Uh, Legend Hunter, I had a pretty good uh, helicopter story from that. Laid on us. The, uh, the first episode of Legend Hunter, we're on a helicopter over the Salton Sea. And up there for about 45 minutes, everything's going great. Beautiful day in you know, Southern California. And then all of a sudden, it starts to get a little bit windy. And in a helicopter, when it gets windy, that can get a little bit scary. So where helicopter starts just dropping, just dropping like a stone, you know, 50 feet down and then shooting up 20 feet and then dropping down 10 feet, and shooting up 100 feet and just really getting a little bit scared. And I'm kind of joking around with the, with the pilot a little bit. And um, he's like, yeah, we got to find some better, uh, you know, some better wind, some better air. So he, he goes to turn and we realize that we're right on the Mexican border. And he's like, oh, can't go that way. <laughs> That's not going to be good. It's like, I'm going to turn around and go this way. And there's a sandstorm that's kicked up. So he's like, no, I can't do that either. And he starts to turn the other way. And as he turns, a call comes over the radio and I can hear it. And it's the, the United States government saying that we're flying over one of their bases and an active firing um, excursion is going on right then. So we have to turn around immediately. And he's like, well, I don't know where we're going to go, but let's, let's figure this out. So I was very, very close. I was absolutely convinced that we were going to crash. And that's the only time I texted my wife. And I said, hey, I'm in a helicopter. I'm pretty sure we're going to crash, but we're low enough to the ground that I don't think I'll die. I'm really sorry. Oh, but you, you got out. You got out. Somewhere, oh, yeah, obviously. we were fine. Really, really good pilot. Many, many years of training. And yeah, but I was terrified. Yeah, there's nothing you can do. And you just got to sit there. Okay, well, we'll see. Yeah, let's see what happens. I mean, when you're talking about traveling, you know, to all different places, that was that was in the U.S. But transportation is the scariest part of travel. I mean, I, I've been in a truck going over a hundred miles an hour down dirt roads, you know, in in the Congo with huge potholes on these kind of mud roads, and uh, the truck caught on fire while we're driving, like flames shooting out of the dashboards into our faces while we're driving, and that's just normal. That's just part of it. Yeah, it's just Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't worry, boss. I'll have it fixed by tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Or they pull over to the side of the road. So in, in that instance, um, I, I have a photo of it because we pull over to the side of the road and the guy pops the hood and there is a chewed corn cob holding down the battery. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, man. It brings DIY to a whole new level. 
Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So, uh, um, Legend Hunter, was that, that was the first show that you were involved in? No, Legend Hunter was, uh, it just aired in 2019. Oh, okay, okay. All right. That was Travel Channel. Yeah, that was the last one I did kind of before the world shut down, and um, I decided to write some books. <laughs> he did King of the Jungle before that. <laughs> I did. Yeah, King of the Jungle was, uh, that was pretty fun. So that was my, my wife um, encouraged me to do that because I was given a lot of wildlife talks. I was just this, you know, I was doing some YouTube stuff and uh, giving wildlife talks, but she started to notice that parents were getting scared of me as I'm talking to a whole group of kids, you know, just, I was just doing it for fun. Like I'd be out there catching things on my own. And then you get a group kind of gathered around you. And, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife. And she was like, yeah, you got to do something to make this a little bit legit. I know you love it, but they don't know that you're safe. Like you got to figure some way out here. And she saw this ad on animal planet where they were looking for wildlife hosts. And, um, that was it. I just, I, I told my boss, I was working in a microbiology lab at the time. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be out for a couple of days. I'm going to drive to Ohio from Boston and uh, audition for this show. And I was the first one in line. And uh, I, yeah, I guess I, I did something to impress them. I put my leg over my head while I was talking. So maybe that was part of it. Yeah, that would probably do it. I can, uh, all my joints disconnect. So I did some stupid human tricks for them. <laughs> oh, you're one of those guys. Oh, yeah. So while, during the interview, like I just casually threw one leg over my head while I was talking. <laughs> but you're also personable. You're smart. You're enthusiastic. You, you know, you're just oozing with, with, with what TV hosts should have. Oh, thank you. I feel the same about you guys. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I love it. I really do. It's, uh, I like to get people as excited as I am about wildlife. And, you know, usually that involves a high tolerance for pain and a lot of self-deprecating humor. So I just have a good time with it. Well, you shared the bullet ant stuff, I think, last time you were on the, uh, on the show. That was crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is, a, that is the best word for it. That's a big part of the Brazil book. Um, there's a lot in there. Uh, you know, what, well, you, you guys obviously know about TV. You know, what you see is a 15-minute segment, and that's really about 30 hours of just pure insanity to get those 15 minutes. Yeah. So the Brazil book, that's the Bulletproof Ground Sloth book? It is. Yeah, the Mapinguari. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad you like the titles. That's my little uh, homage to Dr. Strangelove, all of my, uh, all my subtitles. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I didn't know you had so many. Like, how many books do you have out? Six. Six, okay. Six That's, books, yeah. yeah. So it was, um, it all started as one. So I had been working on one book for years. And I've been kind of pitching it around, you know, not too aggressively, just talking to different people about it, talking to a few different um, publishers and stuff. And I don't think anyone really got it, what I was going for. Like I had one publisher who was really interested, but wanted me to turn it into this kind of heartfelt, um, you know, really poignant uh, or, or a behind the scenes look at. And I was like, no, I'm just, I just want this to be fun. I want it to be the, the reality of what it's like to be in these places and something that, you know, is a, is a quick read and something that someone can grab and enjoy. Like on a plane, you have a friend that's going to Sumatra here, give them the Sumatra book and, um, you know, learn a little bit about the, the cryptid as well. But really, they're just kind of funny travel stories. So finally, there was a the, uh, this this company really got it, and they said, "But you got to cut this down. You know, you've got eight hundred pages. That's way too long for uh, for this type of book." And I said, "Okay, yeah, let's do it." And as we started working on it, they came back to me a couple weeks later and said, "You know what? Actually, could you write more? <laughs> and we're going to turn this into a series." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense because, you know, what, how, an 800-page book, what you charge 30, 40 bucks for it. But, you know, you have a bunch of smaller books and that's more digestible. The readers feel like they're getting somewhere when they're finished with it and you can charge 15 bucks a piece. It's, it makes monetary sense. It makes sense from the point of the, of the perspective of the reader. Um, and it's all making sense to me now because you sent me the uh, the Brazil chapter of your book before the last appearance in the podcast. And I said, I, I remember a, a much longer book with many chapters and what I'm looking at on Amazon here. So. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a really, really huge, um, huge volume before, but then we kind of cut it up and I wrote a few more and I moved things around. The whole process took over a year of editing and, um, yeah, but then, uh, then they all started coming out in July, I'm sorry, January, and then two more are coming out in February. Yeah. yeah Cause I'm looking on Amazon and some of these are say February 1st, 2023. Yeah. 
And all the other ones say January 1st, 2023. So all these books are being released upon the public at once. You're just unleashing all of this love on everybody all at once. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that is all in the uh, in, in the um, producers there. I, I really don't know how any of the marketing works or any of that stuff or why they chose to do it all in one day. I'm just really excited to have them out there and have people get to get to kind of hear these stories. Well, I, I have read the I have read the uh, the Brazil chapter because that's what you shared with me um, before you came on the podcast. Yeah, you, you were kind enough to give me a quote for, oh, for the really? book. So yeah, you're, you're in the, um, you're, you're on one of the first pages of, uh, of that book. Oh, well, that's nice of me. It's, it's nice to know what I, 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 things I don't remember that are kind. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that the public is going to take this very well because, uh, um, you're a, a good writer. I mean, like I said, I mean, all those things that I mentioned about you being a good TV show host trans transfers over to your writing very, very well. It's very personable and easy to digest and fun to read. It's a, it's a romp. It's a romp through your trip, through your eyes, you know, and you've had some in- incredible adventures um, and it's just fun to read. It's almost like you're there. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. No, I can't wait to get into this. I'll, I'll definitely uh, pick. Hey, uh, actually, actually, uh, for the NABC here, the, the Bigfoot Museum, can I get some of these things uh, wholesale through you, autographed? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We talk about that off air or something like that, but I definitely want to get, especially the, uh, the little Bigfoot on the hunt in Sumatra or how I learned there are some things that really do not taste like chicken. <laughs> yeah. you know, Sumatra is a great place to learn that some things do not taste like chicken. Yeah. There, there are a lot of things in Sumatra that do not taste like chicken as I found <laughs> out. Uh, including chickens. Right, right. Amazingly, yeah. <laughs> when they've been soaked in uh, the hottest chili peppers in the world. And <laughs> They're into chili, man. They're really into chili there. Oh, yeah. Chili and sugar. I found that. Uh, so sugar is a sign of wealth. So, uh, you know, the, the, the kind hosts that we were with would load everything we had up with sugar, including eggs in the morning. That would be crunchy with so much sugar in them. Ugh. <laughs> And then there was, uh, of course, the durian that that everyone loves, and that's, oh man, yeah. So my mother-in-law, my mother-in-law loves durian, and um, I have no idea. She'd been telling me for years, and she used to fill our house with it whenever she would come to visit. She was living in Hawaii at the time. She now lives, um, you know, in the same town as as, as us. And um, she would fill our house with durian, and I'd, I'd always try it and just say, no, like, I just can't do it. I can't. She's like, you, you got to have it fresh. You have to try it fresh. So while I was in Sumatra, I saw some street vendors selling fresh durian, and I was like, well, here's my chance. And one of our guides goes, no, 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 no. No, you, you should not do this. And I was like, ah, it's not my first rodeo, my friend. I know what I'm doing. Um, my mother-in-law was wrong. It is much worse when it's fresh. It was absolutely <laughs> revolting. <laughs> Oh yeah, and of course, if uh, our, our listeners, just in case you don't know what durian is, it's a big fruit, um, and it stinks. What does it smell like, Pat? Uh, I mean, like a mixture of really old, bad Chinese food and old beer mixed with stinky feet. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, make my mouth water, Pat. <laughs> it's slimy, and it has kind of a some like a little alcoholic tinge to it, like a really bad vodka, um, almost just that sourness. You really know how to sell it. Oh, oh, there's nothing about it that makes you think this should be edible. I mean, it's just... <laughs> well, well being, being a scientist, is it good for you? It has antioxidants, so sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is edible, and you can get nutrients from it. It's a fruit. You're going to get some fiber. But, man, not worth it in my book, unless you are starving. Not worth it. I've heard, I've heard there's actually places in uh, Indonesia, I think, uh, I, think I want to say... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to take a stab at the island. I can't remember. But uh, they're illegal to take on buses. Yeah. Yeah. There's signs up in all the public transports and in all the hotels and everything. I took a few pictures of the signs. Yeah. No dirty and can't bring it in here. Um, One of my friends in Massachusetts actually brought it to her grandmother. Her grandmother also loved it, who was in in an elder home. And uh, her grandmother accidentally left it on the radiator and the entire place had to be cleared out because they thought there was a gas leak. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god it is rough that's hilarious but there's so i mean there's delicious things in sumatra too there's you know i had this one fruit um i was on this it, it only grows on one side of one mountain in the entire world and um we just happened to you know be driving through and our, one of our guides knew the guy who grows the guy because there's one person that grows them and we got to try it and it's just this like amazing you know it's it's almost like a passion fruit um where it's like the little almost uh frog egg looking things with a citrus taste to it but it's the uh, it's totally unique. 
I think we got to try that. It's possible. Yeah, if you were in Sumatra, I mean, and, and you know the right people. <laughs> I think we were staying at that fancy. We stayed in that fancy hotel in Kathmandu. I think they had it at the buffet. Oh, Kathmandu is a different country. Well, I mean, uh, Jakarta. Jakarta, yeah, in Jakarta, yep. So yeah, let's talk about some of your books a little bit more detail. And of course, we went into the Brazilian one last time, so we'll lay off that a bit. But the one that I'm most interested in because of my uh, furry hominoid interest is A Little Bigfoot um, on the Hunt in Sumatra. Uh, t- so t- tell us about that book. I'm assuming that you went after the Orang Pendek. We did. Yep, absolutely. And um, I, I am convinced. So I went in there genuinely. I, I always go in with an open mind. I went in thinking that it was most likely mistaken identity for either an orangutan and a gibbon. And I had my mind changed. I had my mind changed while I was there. Um, I absolutely think that there is uh, at least one, probably two different types of unknown primate. And uh, one more hominin, uh, more, you know, potentially like a remnant of the, the um, Homo floresiensis. And I, another one that's more gibbon-like, more like a ground-dwelling gibbon. And there would be an evolutionary reason for that. There would be uh, a lot of environmental factors that would lead to that and you know, a, a benefit that it would get being more nocturnal and more ground-dwelling. And yeah, I mean, after talking to a lot of people, hearing the accounts, seeing the forest where they live, um, and doing a few different experiments there, I really, yeah, it, it convinced me. Oh yeah. 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 They're real for sure. Um, I probably spoke to you about this last time. You know, I sponsored the Orang Pendek project for a number of years. Um, and we got some interesting, um, actual footprint data. I think, uh, some of it is fake, unfortunately, because unbeknownst to me, my contacts over there started paying witnesses. Um, so I wasted a lot of money doing that sort of thing. But, um, but there is, there are some really interesting samples in the data set. Um, uh, two or three in particular are just fascinating and I don't see how they could have been hoaxed, um, very easily. Um, especially being consistent like they were and, and some of the background information. Um, but, uh, when, when my contacts went to a different part of Sumatra, they came back with orangadang footprints and, and, uh, they didn't know any, and even my contacts didn't know about these. They said, yeah, I went there and they, they call them this over here. They're a lot bigger for some reason. That's all I know. Um, and I got, uh, the, probably the, one of the best samples is four footprints in a row from the same trackway then they all are remarkably different. And two of the footprints, um, I don't remember left or right. They're all hanging up in the museum here, but, um, I, and I'm doing the podcast from the museum, but, um, uh, two of the footprints, the foot is pronated. So like, it's very, very flat and big toe or big toe impressions, big splay. And, and the other two are, it's, um, supinated, which is like lifted up a little bit. And, um, it d- didn't make any sense to me. Um, and it, the footprints didn't make it cause they're kind of roundish and that the toes were there, but they looked very weird. And I didn't understand it until, um, I had Esteban Sarmiento over the house one time, Dr. Esteban Sarmiento. And I was showing him those things and he goes, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense because orangutans, they walk on the outside of the foot when they'll go around on, on, you know, on, on bipedally or whatever. And it's like, Oh my gosh. And then that, that really opened a lot of doors for me as far as interpreting that evidence as well as the Sasquatch footprint evidence as well. I thought it was really interesting, but when you were in Sumatra, um, I know you were looking for the orang pendek, but did orang gadang even come up on the radar? So when we were doing the research and we had, uh, so Jeremy Holden was the main contact that we were working with, Jeremy Holden and a lot of his, uh, his folks. And he's, you know, Flora and Fauna International and Nat Geo, um, he's done a whole bunch of work in Sumatra. He, he found um, the skull-faced macaque in uh, Myanmar uh, a, a short time after that. But he, uh, his camera traps are just absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, and he was also he worked with Debbie Martyr, didn't he? He did. Yeah, so we we met with Debbie, um, and you know, kind of saw her track collection and saw some of the other stuff that she's got. It was just absolutely amazing. But Jeremy was our main contact, and he did say that throughout. You know, he's been everywhere around the country, and he said that there are a few different stories. So right when we were in the beginning, we we decided that we were going to focus exclusively on a Rengpendek and exclusively on um, you know this type of site. So have you talked to Dr. Gregory Forth? Uh, I haven't. Oh, you might want to. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know who he is or not. No, but, uh, no. Then I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar. I'm going to write this down. Gregory Forth. 
yeah, he's got two great books out, uh, Images of the Southeast Asian Wild Man, which his first book is very academic, and he does a, a worldwide survey of various uh, um, hairy hominoids. And he spends a lot of time on Sumatra and Indonesia because he was a cultural anthro- – he is a cultural anthropologist who focuses on uh, the island of Flores, of course. You know, Homo floresiensis kind of blew his mind. And he actually published a book this past year uh, – what is it? Between Ape and Man, I think the title is um, – about, about a different – type of, you know, he was very interested in the Ibugogo on Flores. Um, but it turns out there's another type of unknown hominoid that he has gone out on a limb and said, yeah, yeah, these things are real and they're still alive. On the other side of Flores, I think is on the eastern side of Flores. And um, uh, forget the name of the thing, but we had him on the podcast and he just published another book. I think he's up at the University of Alberta, if I remember right. Oh man, I, I got to check these out. Absolutely. So, so I was able to meet with Mike Mavretic, who discovered Homo floresiensis. Yeah, no, I, that's something I definitely want to talk about. I don't want to cut you off, but last time you were on, you teased us um, you, with with this idea that you knew an older gentleman that he said that he was completely confident that Homo floresiensis persisted at least until the early 1900s at some point. Yeah, and th- that was Mike. That was Mike Mavretic. Oh, t- tell us more about that, please. Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately, I don't have too much more information about it because it's it's a tease for me as well. So the the problem was, um, so this was the very last day that we were going to be in country. And uh, we had set up this interview with Mike and through a a series of events, um, it kept on getting canceled and then rescheduled and then moved to a different location. And we were going to film with the the Flores skeleton, with um, with the Homo floresiensis skeleton. And it was like, no, it's being locked down by the government. They're not letting any Westerners in, not even Mike and his team. And then it was, no, it's it's at a conference. We're going to have to have a model. So Long story short, it was about three hours of back and forth, and we're you know on our way to the airport. Finally, we get through to Mike himself, and he was like, yeah, I'm really sorry, guys. I don't know what's going on here. Um, I'm really not feeling well, but if you, if you can be to my hotel, I can meet you for a cup of coffee, and we can chat for you know 20 minutes. So I said, okay, great. And um, it turns out that Mike, uh, and, and I was really sick too, so I was not feeling great either. I had uh, gotten some kind of really awful stomach bug, and it turned out that that was actually the first um, symptoms for both Mike and I of cancer. And uh, Mike passed away from his a short while later, and I, I went through about two years of pretty rough times, uh, but did come out the other side. So, so Mike and I get together. Neither of us are feeling great, and we got to chat just for a short amount of time. And one of the first things that I asked him about um, Orang Pendek, have you ever heard of this? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I have. I said, do you think that there's any chance that this could be you know, a surviving member of so- something similar to Homo floresiensis? And without a beat, he goes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't see any reason why I wouldn't think that. He's, he, and he said, he's like, I have found evidence that he's like, you know, it's not publishable. It's not something that would, that would you know, pass scientific scrutiny, but... I, I firmly think that um, there's every reason to believe that they were around at least until the 1920s. Did you mention this in your book? Yeah. Yeah. And he said there, there's so many islands in Indonesia. I don't see why it would be a, a stretch to say that there's still a couple around in, uh, on one of these islands. And he said, he goes, the other thing that you will find the more time that you spend here is it's easier to get a television crew in here than it is to get a scientific expedition. He told us stories about, you know, um, he heard really credible accounts of giant lizards bigger than Komodo dragons on a couple of the islands. And, um, yeah, he said, he, he's, he goes, you know, the more times that you can come out here, the more times that you and other film crews can get out here, the more that you're going to find. Yeah, it makes perfect. You know, Gregory Fourth is kind of a, a poster child for that because he lived on Flores, interacting with the people there, um, and, and spoke the language and the, uh, the whole nine, man. I and mean, he he got into the culture, and that's kind of what it takes. The longer you're there in some place, the more accepting you are of these people are not nuts. They're not, you know, uh, superstitious savages. They're actually talking about what they see. Oh yeah, you know, like an outsider, Western, uh, never left, you know, the United States perspective is, you know, one of looking down on these people. Whereas if you're in there speaking to them, you go, oh no, these just, just folks telling me about the, their truth. And it, it just needs to be done on boots on the ground in that sort of way. So he's correct. Absolutely. One, one guy, when I was there, he said, um, the only people who don't believe in a ring pendek are the people who've never been to my forest. I'm like, <laughs> All right, that's fair. That's yeah, absolutely. And, um, I think you're absolutely right that people in the U S especially, and in just the Western world in general do tend to write off 
um, indigenous people who have these sightings. And I, I think of how, you know, ethnocentric and how kind of arrogant that is to say that, you know, who am I to say that they're, they're not seeing, Oh, you don't know what you're seeing. You know, of course they do. Yes, absolutely. This is, they, and they, they treated Orang Pendek as if it was just a known thing. Like it was no big deal. Like mo- a lot of the people that we talked to were shocked that we were so interested in it. Um, they really wanted to talk about tigers because tigers have this real spiritual connection with uh, with the people in Sumatra, and they think that tigers kind of bridge the world between the spirits and uh, and humans, and you know the natural history. And they were like, "Oh, Rengpendek, they're just animals. Like, why are we talking about this right now? Don't you want to know about tigers? I saw a tiger the other day. You want to talk about tigers?" And I was like, "That's really cool, but can we go back to the hominid that you're talking that you're describing?" <laughs> and they're like, "Well, sure, I guess, but." So, so from, from a biological perspective, what do you what do you think it is about the Indonesian islands that has? Uh, factually, we know this for a fact, let alone orang pendex and everything else that may or may not, ibogogos and whatever else might be walking around in there. We know that at least two different species of hominins um, evolved there. And they're both, I mean, I guess the island dwarfism thing would come in. But we're talking about Homo floresiensis. And also um, in 2000, May of 2019, I believe, um, they described uh, another species from uh, Luzon in the Philippines, Homo luzonensis. Um, what is what is up with uh, with uh, Indonesian islands and that part of the world for small hominins? I, I think you hit it right on the head. It's islands. It's that this is one of the one of the the biggest chains of islands in the world, and you get these small isolated populations with you know r- strong currents in between them, kind of difficult to navigate waters, but close enough where it would make sense for a small population to get to an island and then have the chance to speciate. Um, and and you see that in you know not just not hominin populations, but you see that in in all different species. You know, on Flores, there were tiny elephants and giant lizards. And, um, you know, the island of Komodo, you see the Komodo dragons come about. And you, you do find them in a couple of the other islands as well. They're on Flores. How big were those other lizards? Um, so Mike was saying that they were uh, like 15 feet. Ooh. So, yeah, I mean, pretty significant. Like, that's an intense... He did not see them himself. He just said credible accounts. He had heard credible accounts. So I I was desperate to get back there. And then, unfortunately, I was out of it for about two years. And there was an expedition that was about to be launched um, with, you know, Jeremy. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to go on it. And it, it did fall through. Um, but I would love to do that again, just to be able to get out there and see, because I think there is so much more to find on some of those islands. Agreed. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So, um, going on to another one of your books here, A Living Dinosaur on the Hunt in West Africa, or... How I Avoided Prison But Was Outsmarted by a Snail. Yes. <laughs> That's the best title ever. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, what's up with that one? I'm assuming you went after Michele Mbembe? We did, yeah. So, And really, um, that's one of the things about the Beast Hunter was that we weren't really ever looking to prove or disprove that the animal exists. We're looking to tell, you know, from from an anthropological perspective, like why is this story interesting? What's interesting about this story? What are the known species that are, that are similar to this or that are, you know, that could potentially explain the sightings or are at least similar to this? And why does the story persist? Um, so in that instance, I don't think that there is a surviving dinosaur in West Africa, unfortunately. Um, I didn't get to, you know, Lake Telly and a couple of the other regions where it's supposedly sighted, but nothing there pointed me in that direction. It is a phenomenal story that makes a lot of sense from a cultural perspective. But um, the, the reasons why I avoided jail and was outsmarted by a snail, um, I was a, a failed hunter. <laughs> so the, uh, the Baca Pygmy tribe that we were living with um, brought me on a hunt, which was a high honor. And I was really amazed to be included in this. But um, I, am, I am not a hunter by any stretch of the word. <laughs> and I was you know, so noisy and so uh, kind of tripping over my own feet that we spent the whole day and weren't able to actually catch anything until the very end when we found a few giant land snails. So they were excited. At least this will be some protein. We'll get this. And I was put in charge of watching the snails. That was my job. And I even failed at that. (laughs) How'd you fail? I let snails escape because um, we got attacked by bees and I got... (laughs) 
I was paying more attention to the bees kind of stinging me and trying to avoid fire. We had a, you know, a fire going to smoke out the bees and then you're breathing in the smoke and then you got more bees on you. Do you know uh, Adam Davies, the British explorer? I have spoken with him. Yes. Yeah. He, he said that was because we, I mean, he's been to the Gobi desert and, you know, he's been all over the world. He said, without a doubt, the worst thing he's ever encountered were those bees in Africa, the sweat bees that go for your eyes. Oh, man, just covering you. These were, um, I had the sweat bees in Brazil that were just, they were in your eyes, in your mouth, up your nose. But in West Africa, it was um, just these really big, they looked like honeybees, but they were, you know, really big. And of course, all the 80s commercials about Africanized killer bees are running through in my mind. And um, yeah, so I was just going back and forth between the fire and the bees and getting stung a whole bunch. And then I looked down and the snails are gone. I was like, how lame is this that I can't even keep track of snails? (laughs) And then uh, I was almost arrested for wearing camouflage. (laughs) Just the fashion police got you, huh? Yeah, exactly. Um, I had a gentleman. um, So we're filming and we're filming on a long lens. So it's just me and the crew is, you know, blocks and blocks away. And I'm walking around and all of a sudden this guy comes up to me and he started grabbing my pants and pulling on them and yelling at me in French. I was like, hey, man, what's what's going on? Like I'm kind of pointing to the cameras and he's like, no, 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 no. And waving and like goes to pull my pants down. And I was like, get the hell away from me. Like, what are you doing? So he walks away, just shaking his head and yelling. And a couple minutes later, another guy comes out and this guy's in an official looking uniform and looks much angrier. And he starts, you know, really yelling at me. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't speak French. And he goes, no French. And I was like, no, I'm really sorry. I, I, you know, unfortunately, I'm really bad at languages. And he was like, oh, you speak English. I go, yeah. He goes, English is the language of Barack Obama. It is a good language. And I was like, oh, I voted for it. And he, goes, he goes, you're the reason Barack Obama is president? I went, yes. Yes. Yes, yes, I am. I'm solely responsible for that. Yes, sir. Yes. So he, uh, so he starts kind of laughing and he's like, Oh yeah, you know, this is what, whatever he calls us into his office. And he's like, you know, I was going to put you in jail. Why are you going to, and he goes, you can't, you can't wear these. This tells me that you're a member of a militia. I was like, Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. I I did not know that. Yeah, so yeah, so suddenly that first guy made a lot more sense to you. Right. Yeah, the guy who was trying to rip my pants off makes it yeah, wasn't bit flirting worse. at all, actually, yeah. was he? No, he just thought that I was a part of a militia and wanted to get us out of there. <laughs> is it not a camouflage enthusiast? What is this? Right. <laughs> I just can't see being a camouflage enthusiast. Oh, ooh, I know. I do that sort of thing. I apologize. So but yeah, it was uh, it was an amazing trip though. That was my kind of trial by fire. That was the the first real um, crazy shoot of that series. Uh, the only other international filming I had done at that point was in um, Costa Rica, which you know was so tame by comparison. So my first experience was a really good one. I got um, I got all kinds of you know definite uh, definite hazing going on there. Did you have any other close calls with wildlife besides those bees? Like anything hectic? Like crocodiles or anything i got charged by a silverback gorilla Ooh. Um, yeah we were tracking gorillas through the central african um uh, central african republic and we've been tracking gorillas all day and um you know there's a they they were somewhat okay with people because a group of um primate researchers had been like this is not a public thing these are you know a, a research camp that we're staying at and um so we're, we're kind of going and the, the silverback, his main job in life, his main role in life is to keep his troop protected. That's it. And they have to give him unwavering loyalty for that. Like that's kind of the trade-off. So he has a harem of, of females and a bunch of babies and a couple young men that are just not quite old enough to get kicked out. And that's his group. And while we were following them, Um, apparently another silverback was off in the distance that we didn't know. And one of the females checked out the other guy. So that made the silverback really embarrassed. Like he lost face in front of us. So he threw her into a tree and then charged at us with his teeth bared. Like basically saying, I'm still tough. Like, I can't believe that you just saw that. And, um, so it just instinct kicked in and I kind of immediately looked down at the ground and grabbed a thing of grass and started like, no, you're tough. You're strong. Like I'm nothing. Just leave me alone. And, and it worked, but that was, you know, got to 
check your pants after that. <laughs> so now, now you know what it's like to be charged by a little Bigfoot. Yeah, exactly. I think that would, man, the people that I talked to who had, um, you know, experiences with Orang Pendek said that it's so otherworldly. Like they, they, they said it's hard to eat. Like they couldn't even really function in the moment. Like one, a couple people just said they were brought to tears immediately when they saw it. And then the farmers who lived in the area lived right on the edge of the forest. For them, it was just a normal kind of occurrence. They were like, oh yeah, I'm excited that it's still there. But again, let me tell you about these tigers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think I'm going to try your technique, by the way. Next time I'm like having a few beers at a bar and somebody gets belligerent with me, I'm just going to look down and eat whatever plants are growing nearby. <laughs> I mean, it, it worked in high school with football players, so I kind of <laughs> thought it would be the same. <laughs> Yeah, a, a friend of mine actually was at some jock party, and he was by no means a jock. Um, and he got, and he was being weird and you know being a freak, basically, like most of my friends are. And he got to the point where the jocks were going to beat him up for what for being a freak at the party, and and it, it was, he was going to be doomed. And he says, "You're not going to beat me up. I am." And he started beating the hell out of himself, like like bloodied his nose and Fight club style. Himself. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, totally. It's just but bloodied, yeah, and they this freaked all the jo- the jocks out. They bailed. <laughs> if we were outside, my go-to was to catch a snake and then just watch them freak out and run away. But when you're in, when you're in the cafeteria, when you're you know, as soon as they walk by, you just make yourself look tiny. Like, oh, I'm not worth messing with. Just walk away. Yeah, start eating the plastic plants. Yeah, um, exactly. The, the, the decorate. Well, that's a good segue to your, to the to the. I think the last book we need to talk about. Unless, um, two hundred thousand snakes on the hunt in Manitoba, or how I found a new beginning at the bottom of a giant pit of snakes. Yeah, so that was the um, the the producer. The, I keep on saying producers. I'm just so used to the publishing company. The publishing company wanted. Uh, so I had throughout all of the stories, kind of cancer was an undercurrent of a lot of the stories in a very dark humor kind of way. Um, that's just that's how I how I roll with this. I like it. So yeah, I mean, it was a. I'll tell you. So my my oncologist knows my sense of humor, and when I was five years out from a diagnosis, the oncologist said, "Look, at you're probably the only person I can say this to." And I was like, "Are you going to tell me that I'm cured?" And he was like, "No, I'm not going to tell you that you're cured." And he's like, "I can't even tell you that you don't have cancer because I can't. I don't know myself that I don't." He goes, "But what I can tell you is, right now at this moment." you are just as likely to die of cancer as anyone else is. And that is pretty likely. That's good. Hey, you went to the right doctor. Yeah. And he was like, but you are back in the normal population. So, so this was kind of the, um, the undercurrent throughout the book. So the, um, the publishing company said, why don't we take a lot of the cancer stuff and put it into one book and tell us kind of how, how this happened, how you came out of it, and how that ties in with the show. Because I, I really say that filming Beast Hunter saved my life. That's um, because if I hadn't been traveling and, and eating and doing all the crazy things that I was doing, I would have you know, chalked up the stomach pain to a lot of other things. I wouldn't have been so persistent in trying to get a diagnosis. So that book is really the story of kind of how I got into TV, how I got into you know doing this wildlife stuff, how I got cancer, and then what happened after the show, and um, that was you know just surviving cancer. So the um, there's a, this great um, Instagram account called the Cancer Patient, and it's really designed for cancer patients who are going through it. Just super dark humor, really really good stuff, and they have a whole section called um, questionable coping mechanisms. And my questionable coping mechanism was um, driving 34 hours up to Manitoba, Canada to lay down at a pit of snakes. <laughs> and that was how I convinced myself that I could still do this, that I could still, you know, I was the same person that I was before cancer and I could still just do the stupid, ridiculous things that I had done before. Well, was there 200,000 snakes in a pile or a pit? Yeah, it's the largest concentration of snakes on earth is in Manitoba, Canada. So when you think of a concentration of snakes, people talk about like Snake Island in Brazil and Snake Island in Indonesia, and it's not. Um, So in Manitoba, you get these, uh, it's called the Narsi snake dens or the snake pits. And there are these kind of indents into the ground, you know, these, these dens or pits. 
And every spring and fall, they're just absolutely filled with snakes because it's about the furthest north in the snake's range. So it's about the coldest that they can survive. Um, snakes go underground in the northern climates. They go underground in the, in the winter. And this um, just has a confluence of factors. So it happens to have limestone caves underground that the entrances are big enough for a snake to get in, but not big enough for a predator to get in. It also, um, if they're in huge numbers, they produce a little bit of heat, kind of enough to survive the really, really cold. You're also filling up the space more. So just like when your fridge is full, it retains the, the temperature better than if it's a little bit empty. Um, and there's uh, when they emerge out of the pits, the first thing they want to do is mate and eat. So if they den together, they've got their mates right there. And if they want to eat, um, this region is surrounded by swamp. So they've got a ton of hunting activity right there. So it just all of these factors lead to every snake for you know between five and 10 miles around all congregate into these this one area. And the 200,000 number is a little bit random. So if, if you read the, the surveys that they've done, I found numbers everywhere from 75,000 to 400,000. So I just picked a number in the middle. It was like 200,000 sounds pretty good, <laughs> but it was a lot of snakes. I mean, you could, I could reach down up to my shoulder in snakes and just let them roll over my arm like water. I could lay down and be completely covered in them. And I did. <laughs> yeah. Dream come true. I think. It was, it was for me, <laughs> but I understand the, uh, the, I mean, the one thing I'll say that was awful about it was the smell. Um, the smell was so terrible that I had to sell my car as soon as I got back to Boston. <laughs> it was gross. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Snakes are smelly. Oh yeah. It was me and two of my buddies. And, um, yeah, we drove straight through, we drove 34 hours up there. We spent a day and a half with the snakes and then we got in the car and drove back. Yeah. Like how, how do you shampoo your, 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 your car from snake goo? I thought about it for a little bit, and then I genuinely, I, the couple days later, I did. I brought it to the dealer, and um, the guy got in the car, and he goes, hmm. And I just looked at him with a totally straight face. He goes, unusual odor. And I was like, oh, I didn't notice. <laughs> I hadn't noticed. He was like, hmm, okay. Um, <laughs> so here we go. Yeah, you don't want to use shampoo on that. It, sounds like, it smells like real poo has been used, not that sham stuff. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> You know, I made a mistake. There's actually a couple more books I wanted to, to ask you about before we run out of time here. Um, uh, the, 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 the penultimate book, because we already talked about the Brazil one. So we'll, we'll just send people back to that other previous episode here. But um, this one, Sea Serpents, On the Hunt in British Columbia, or How I Went to the Bottom of the Ocean and the Giant Fish Accidentally Got Me Drunk. Yep. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, what's up with that? These titles just make me want to read. I, I, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So the, um, the going down to the bottom of the ocean was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. It was the production company made the mistake of telling me that there was a chance that, um, you know, we could take a three man sub uh, a thousand feet underwater. And from that moment on, that was all that I was focused on. I was like, if we do nothing else in this entire series, that is the one thing. And I was like, I will eat nothing but cliff bars the entire time that we are filming. I will drive. I will, you know, I will not sleep. You don't have to buy a hotel room, like whatever money we can put into this. And finally, I convinced them to do it. And um, I was able to go down in that sub. And it was just, as a marine biologist, it was the coolest thing I've ever done. It was so ridiculous. And the guy that I the guy that I was filming with, so our producer is this guy, Ben, who's just he has done everything and seen everything. He was um, you know, put in a um a prison in Afghanistan for breaking into a former Soviet chemical weapons facility. Like this guy, he any party, like no one has a better story than Ben. <laughs> So nothing impresses him because of that. Like, you know, we're, we're in the Amazon and there's everyone's just absolutely amazed by, you know, the, the moon that we're seeing just over the water. And Ben will look up and go, hmm, pretty, and then just go back to whatever he was working on. But he and I are at the bottom of the ocean and he taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, Pat, this is cool. <laughs> I was like, all right, <laughs> that's how I know this is unique. <laughs> no, you were off the coast of British Columbia? We were, yeah. So we were in the, the Agamemnon Trench. Yeah. Now, uh, I, whenever I think of these northern sort of oceans, I always think like lousy visibility. Uh, does it improve when you get a thousand feet down? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty good. I mean, it wasn't like you couldn't see for you know a huge distance, but we had really powerful lights and you could see a lot of stuff out there, man. You could see some some amazing squid and some jellyfish and a bunch of lobster or squat lobsters and crabs on the bottom and different tube worms and 
it was really amazing. I mean, I would have spent days down there if I could have. The oxygen lasted, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> the fish that got me drunk was uh, we did the first ever CAT scan on an oarfish. Oh, wow, really? Do they live up there? In uh, No, no. So we did that at Woods Hole. Yeah, I thought they were tropical. They're more tropical fish, aren't they? So they're found all over the world. They've been found. Uh, they're mostly found in the. They're mostly times that they're seen are in the tropics and like off the coast of uh, Japan. They've seen a, a few of them, but they believe that they live just in the open oceans all over. And I mean, if you want to talk about places that we know nothing about, the open ocean is the top of that list. So uh, we we found someone who had an oarfish sample or who had an oarfish, and he agreed to transport it up to Woods Hole and let us do the first ever CAT scan of it. And that CAT scan led to, I think they said two or three dissertations that were going to be written based on that CAT scan, where we found you know different feeding mechanisms, different food sources, different uh, forms of mobility um, than they had previously known about. So it was some really remarkable science to come out of this. But what happened for me is. The um, the sample is laid out on the table, and as we're filming, they wanted to get a whole bunch of just B-roll of me just kind of looking at it. So like, Pat, lean down real close and you know take a look and walk around and come over from this angle and walk around. And now we're going to get some stills, and I'm in there for about an hour doing this, and all of a sudden I started acting more stupid than I normally do. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of like touching the fish and going, blub, blub, blub. <laughs> That's what it's saying, blub, blub, just doing all this stupid stuff. And one of the guys... One of the producers, she goes, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know, man. I feel weird. And I started laughing. And uh, the guy who brought the fish, he walks by and he goes, he's eating a sandwich. I distinctly remember he was eating a sandwich. And he pokes his head in the room. He goes, how long has he been in there? Like about an hour. And he goes, he's drunk. Like, what are you talking about? He goes, I preserved that thing in ethanol. (laughs) He's been breathing it in for an hour. (laughs) <laughs> so you're breathing in the fumes of ac- uh, the alcohol and it got you drunk. Yep. Yep. So they had to clear the room for a little while, let me sober up. I had a pretty pounding headache because that is not a good drunk to be. No. And then keep on filming. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. Once you sobered up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little. I mean, me, um, me on camera, a drink or two goes a long way. So. The, the running joke in uh, a couple of the places that we were filming was that I needed I needed a coffee and a gin at all times, and then, <laughs> then we were good to go. Yeah, good combination. Good combination. Coffee's <laughs> far more critical. <laughs> all right, then one one more book to talk about, I guess here, and this one's the uh, Mongolian Death Worm on the Hunt in the Gobi Desert, or how I found the worst bathroom on Earth and learned to love cheese flavored vodka. <laughs> So the the Gobi Desert was amazing. Just one of the most, one of the strangest landscapes I've ever seen in my life. Totally felt like you were on Mars. Um, and the story of the Mongolian death worm is incredible. Uh, we we found all different animals that have all of the characteristics, almost everything that the Mongolian death worm is said to do. There is another animal that does. So as outrageous as it sounds, we're able to show that there are animals in nature that do this. But more than that, we were able to tell the story that, you know, the the, the real um, kind of lesson of the, the story of the Mongolian death worm is don't mess with nature. Everyone who gets hurt by it is either poking it or kicking it or throwing gasoline on it or driving over it or doing something that you shouldn't. So it's really all about just respect for nature, which I loved. And what I found with the nomads that we were living with was just an, an immense respect for nature. Um, we also found a way to make vodka um, <laughs> out of mare's milk. So mare's milk is slightly fermented, and then you condense it by making a, a Chinese sill and um, Chinese still. And we uh, we did that one night and made a lot, a lot of cheese flavored vodka, and then soaked a toxic plant in it called a goya that gave it kind of an earthy flavor. You know, a little umami mixed with your uh, cheese vodka. And, um, yeah, that was a, that was also a very interesting night. What that led to. (laughs) I feel like I got a boring life now. No, 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 man. This is, uh, you know, you, you guys have done some amazing stuff. I love watching all of your adventures. I actually talked to your producers a couple of times when you were planning on going to some of these places. (laughs) So I hope, I hope none of my advice led to any of the difficulties that you had. (laughs) I think we're, we are our own worst enemy when that, that sort of thing. (laughs) That's how it goes though. I mean, that was, that was the same with us and the, and the crew, you know, it's just, it's all fun. 
the um, the worst bathroom on earth also does exist in a tiny little remote town. You know, people say the middle of nowhere when we're describing, you know, Petersburg, New York, or something like that near where I grew up. No, this was truly in the middle of nowhere. There are no roads leading to it or from it. Um, you kind of come up over a hill, and then there's just this town in the middle of the Gobi. And um, there was no running water uh, in the building that we were staying in, but there was a long drop outside it. And after a festival with thousands of drunk folks um, using this bathroom, it was it was uh, a horror. It was a Lovecraftian horror. <laughs> <laughs> you ever been a Burning Man? <laughs> That's very true. Very true. I can imagine can imagine similar experiences. <laughs> Yeah, but nothing compares to the old ones, the old gods. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, uh, Pat, um, do you have time to stick around for another half hour or so? Sure. Let's hear about the cleanest bathroom you ever went into. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Okay, so so uh, Pat Spain, man, thank you so much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond. All these books are being released the, in January and February 2023, and they're all available on Amazon. Is that the best place for them to get it, or do you have a store that helps you out a little bit more? Or what, what's the, what, what can you tell us? Yeah, I think Amazon or any of your local bookstores. Okay, very good. And what about if people want to watch some of the old episodes or uh, catch up on what you're doing now, websites or anything like that? So uh, patsbane.com is my site, and the shows, they keep on moving around <laughs> where they're available. I know that the uh, Legend Hunter was on the Travel Channel app for a while. I think it still is. It was also on Amazon Prime. I bet it's on Discovery Plus. It probably is, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, it was. Because travel and, travel and Discovery, and they've all kind of merged. So yeah, I think I think those are around. And then uh, the Nat Geo ones we're also on Amazon for a bit. And uh, yeah, I, I just kind of Google around. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very, anything else you want to share with us? Anything that you're doing, any appearances? Because I met you um, at Lauren Coleman's conference back in the day. You know, Yeah, yeah, that's ago. right. Um, no, nothing planned right now, but uh, you know, who knows what the, the spring will bring. We kind of hibernate through the winter here in my house. <laughs> Well, anyway, yeah, so let, let, we'll kind of shut this one down. And if you can stick around, Pat, we'd really appreciate it. We can go on to our member section with this Beyond Bigfoot and Beyond. Um, so uh, I guess for people listening out there, we have shirts and swag and stuff. You can go to sasquashprints.com and check that sort of stuff out. Um, and other than that, oh, my God. Well, members, you know, if you're listening to us and you think we're hilarious or ridiculous or love us in some other way, um, maybe you should uh, be a member. Because we offer another 40 minutes, maybe 30, 45 minutes of content or more every single week. It's five bucks a month. Go to patreon.com slash Bigfoot and Beyond podcast. Um, it's that kind of support that helps us keep on doing this sort of stuff. We really, really appreciate it. You can find a link, a direct link to the Patreon site in the show notes. So yeah, folks, if you want to get any of Patch books or see any of the TV shows you used to do, there's links in the show notes. Just click on that. You can also join our Patreon account there. And we've asked you guys to give us some uh, recommendations and reviews. And we got a bunch of five-star reviews. Thanks again for you guys. All the great reviews and five stars. We appreciate it a lot. So until next week, y'all keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 